Mysteries to Die For is brought to you by Down and Out Books and Imprint All Due Respect. This episode's feature release is Trigger Switch by Brian Quartermas. Dominic Prince has been a magnet for trouble his entire life. A series of poor life choices and their violent consequences have crushed his spirit. Desperate to outrun this burgeoning rage before it fully consumes him, Dominic accepts an offer he doesn't trust from an old high school classmate. Dutchy Kent says he wants to make one last-ditch effort to prove his acting chops by mounting the New York City debut of a play based on one of Dominic's stories. But the true story involves the real estate empire of a notorious Queens drug dealer and $1.2 million in cash. Dutchy would love to find that catch, but he needs someone else to do the dirty work, someone who attracts trouble and is easily manipulated. Unfortunately for Dutchy, the Dominic he knew in school is gone. The Dominic who shows up at his office is bitter, twitchy, and repulsed by the trash heaps and junkyards of Long Island City that don't fit into his version of a New York debut. None of that matters to Dutchy, though, who continues with his scheme, unaware that every insult, every passive-aggressive comment, and every physical intimidation pushes Dominic one step further toward his rapidly approaching breakpoint. Trigger Switch is available from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, or ask for it from your favorite bookseller. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. Some episodes will be my own. Others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word -word readings, you get a performance meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no fakes, no breaks, no retakes. This is season two. This season contains adaptations of stories published in the 1800s. These stories are some of the first to be considered mysteries. For that reason, this season is called The Originators. Today's story is about the determination of love to find a way, even if it's through an ugly truth. This is episode 5B, Franklin Blake Returns, an adaptation of The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins. One of this story was told in episode 5A by Sergeant Cliff, Cuff, not Cliff, Cuff, a London detective hired by the Lady Verendeer, or however the heck you pronounce her name, to investigate the theft of the Moonstone Diamond. Here is a summary. The gem has been left by Lady Verendeer's older brother and her daughter, to her daughter, Rachel, as a birthday present. You see, uh, Franklin Blake uh, arrived a month before her birthday bringing the diamante diamond uh he possessed deposited not possessed i am on a roll aren't i yeah i really am so how's your day been today okay he and that's why this is a live podcast <laughs> he deposited it into a bank the same afternoon three indianians call indians call on the verandir household posing as magicians why do you say posing how do we know they were posing that's what the story said. It They're did? not really magicians. Oh, we don't know that yet, do we? 
We, I suppose not. They suspect that they are not magicians. I have not read it. I guess when they were literally talking about Indians from all over the place trying to get a hold of this and then magically three Indian dudes. I guess you could have made the connection. Whatever. You have to be there to know it. So go watch the last one if you haven't. I don't know why you're watching this. Like, who cares, man? You what lost your spot, doing? didn't you? No, I'm not. The steward, Gabriel Betteridge, runs them off outside the estate. They are overheard talking about Franklin Blake. Ratchet, or Rachel <laughs> as some people like to call it, the one girl from that one TV show that a bunch of people thought was funny, but I personally think it's just okay, received the diamond in the afternoon of her birthday, wore it to her birthday party that evening, and the next morning it was missing. Cost investigation never got off the ground. That's because aviation hadn't been invented yet. <laughs> Rachel Verandier refused to talk to Cuff, Franklin, or anyone else. The clue of blue paint on a nightshirt died. Poor guy. On the vine when the search of the upstairs rooms was prohibited. Just keep going. <laughs> okay. Rose- Rosanna Spearman. <laughs> dead, I believe. I don't remember. Uh Oh. Spoiler alert, <laughs> if you haven't read it, so go back, really. Uh, Rosanna Spearman, I don't remember if she was the girl who died. A maid with the, oh no, she was, with the criminal past, had a cryptic conversation with the man courting Rachel. Franklin Blake. I shouldn't have paused that long. Uh, the sentence didn't end, that was a comma. She killed herself the next day. Loser. Uh, the Verandier house was a mess. Rachel left with her cousin. I didn't know they were cousins. Godfrey Abelwatts or Abel Abelwhite. I wasn't looking at the right name. Abelwhite to stay with his mother, Lady Verandier. After nope, went after her daughter. Later decided they would go to London to make a fresh start. And broken-hearted by Rachel's rejection, Franklin Blake left England, determined to forget her. Sergeant Cuff, however, was fired. His questions were never answered. Before leaving, he made three predictions. These three amazing predictions that he made uh, were, let's see. One, Betteridge would receive a message from the nearby cottage and a beyond-the-grave message from the dead maid. Two, they would hear of three Indians again. And three, they would also hear of a moneylender named Luker. Got all that? No, we, we're having a little drama in the household here. The The doggies are a little upset, but uh, I think they're tucked away. They're actually in the piano room with Jack, so we'll see if we have any more canine um, cameos coming up. So check out the show notes for the cast of characters, and um, I'll also post what Jack was actually supposed to read so you might be able to make sense out of the recap of episode 5A. Now, while Jack is resetting his microphone and getting his fingers warmed up, I'll explain why we're doing adaptations. So these stories um, were are written in 1800s English. They're, they're hard to read. Um, they're like everything they ever tried to teach us in grade school on grammar and shoved into just one tightly packed wad. The second is that the style and length of these stories were not created for listening. They're created for reading. Today's, ep- or today's original story had over 200,000 words in it, 
and multiple narrators, like seven or 11. We, we've obviously narrowed it down to two. Uh, with these adaptations, we're keeping the heart of the story, preserving the groundbreaking narrative, but updating it for easier understanding. This one tried to be a little bit of everything, a satire, an adventure, a romance, a mystery, a commentary on social standards. Episode 5A was definitely a mystery with police detective Sergeant Cuff investigating. This episode picks up the story one year later and is told by Mr. Franklin Blake. So now we're ready for Franklin Blake Returns. Jack, that's your cue. Take us in. Chapter 1. Franklin Returns to London I am sorry about your father, Mr. Bruff said. He'd been my father's solicitor and by inheritance was mine. He was an excellent member of Parliament, Bruff said, one of the best we had. And of course he was an excellent father. The man who sired me was the former but was hardly the latter. It was a matter of fact, not of emotion. My father wanted to be an MP. He never wanted to be a widower raising a child, which, being honest, was fortunate for me. I loved my schooling in Italy and in France. If my father had been the doting sort, I would not be the man I am today. For that, I was grateful. He was, I said, knocking the ashes from my cigar into the provided tin. Was he sick long? Word hadn't reached me of an illness. No, Bruff said. It came upon him suddenly. We were expecting him to recover, but... The solicitor drifted off because, really, what was there to say? His will is in order, as I indicated in my letter, apart from small bequeaths here and there, his estate is yours, in addition to his interest and his accounts. Bruff continued on, but I paid little attention. My body may have been in this finely appointed office with its tall bookcases, filled to the point of bursting, but my mind? My mind was with a woman, a woman I had left England to forget. Mr. Blake, Bruff waited until my attention was again his. I will need your signature on these documents. Of course, of course, I said, taking the pen he offered and signing where he pointed. How is Rachel? I asked the question before I knew it was in my mind. Bruff sighed long and heavy. She grieves, he said. Grieves, I repeated. For my uncle? For my father? Her uncle? For her mother, your aunt. Bruff said. Lady Verinder passed away a week before your father. It was her heart. Poor Rachel was thrown into chaos. She had been engaged to Godfrey Applewhite. Well, that news made me nauseous. Rachel should have been my wife. We were all but promised to each other until that damn Moonstone business. After her mother's death, Bruff continued, Rachel dissolved the engagement. Godfrey accepted it. His father did not and asked Rachel to leave his house. Rachel is living at my house while we work through the details. She is too young to come into her inheritance. And my heart beat again for the first time in a year. I want to see her, I said. It's been a year. Certainly she's over whatever melancholy had overtaken her. Help me, Bruff. Help me talk to Rachel. Bruff invited me for tea. At precisely four o'clock, I rang the bell at his home and was escorted into the parlor. Bruff and his wife were seated with a lady of similar age. Mr. Franklin Blake, Bruff said, may I introduce Mrs. Francis. 
How do you do, I said, giving her a little bow. Franklin, Rachel stood in the doorway, stunning as well as stunned. What are you doing here? I returned home on the morning train. Of course you would be my first call. I approached her, wanting to touch the face I had dreamt about, but she stepped back. No, I won't have this, she said, her mouth firm but quivering. After everything that happened, how can you think you would be welcome? Everything, I asked. Do you mean my father, your mother? I'm not doing this, she turned, her skirt swishing in defiance. Do not attempt to contact me again. And she was gone. Mr. Bruff cleared his throat. It seems Rachel is not over the feelings that had her sending you away. So it seems, I said. Has she said anything about the root of it? We were so close in those days up to her birthday, and then she wouldn't speak to me. She is not, Bruff said. You can only assume it has something to do with the loss of the diamond. She behaves as though she holds you responsible for it. I shook my head utterly confused. I did everything I could to help find it. I helped that rude Inspector Seagrave and then the competent Sergeant Cuff. Cuff could have solved it if only people would have talked to him. Who didn't talk to him, Bruff asked. Rachel, for one. My aunt's maid, Rosanna. They knew something. Rosanna is dead. She suicided in the sand. Rachel, she knows the truth, as does the person who actually took the diamond. Suddenly, I knew what I was going to do with my life. I'm going to pick up where Cuff left off, Bruff. I'm going to solve the mystery of this damn Moonstone Diamond and win Rachel back. Chapter 2. Franklin Returns to Yorkshire each summer, when I returned home, my father arranged I spend time with my aunt, Lady Julia Verinder, in her country estate in Yorkshire. The memories of being a boy in the wide open land with few rules are as treasured as those of, of exploring Roman ruins and climbing bell towers. I would be lying if I didn't admit that those warm feelings were cooled by my time here last summer. To fall in love and then be rejected? Well... No, I fell in love here and have returned to win back the woman who will be my wife. Amazing how a dose of resolve can change the color of the landscape. I stretched my legs through the garden, going around to the family side of the house. I grinned, delighted to find Gabriel Betteredge napping in his favorite chair. In his lap was an often read copy of Robinson Crusoe. My lord, that man loved that book. We read the entire thing one summer when he had deemed that I had ac adequately learned my lessons. Betteredge looked old to me for the first time. His white hair, his face slack and lined. In the light of my father and my aunt, I grieved. I puffed on my cigar, the smoke twirling in the air, brushing over the sleeping man. His eyes, eyelashes fluttered and then raised. He stared at me as if he thought he was still in a dream. Hello, Better Edge, I said. I will have to remember to buy you another copy of that book. The binding is about to give out. Mr. Franklin, he said, the entirety of his face blossoming in welcome. What a surprise. What a tremendously happy surprise. 
I offered my hand and he took it, shaking it vigorously before launching into a string of questions. Where did I come from? Where was I going? How long was I going to stay? I've come to finish the job Cuff started, I told him. I'm here to find the secret behind the disappearance of the Moonstone, to once and for all reveal the thief, and to win back Rachel's heart. Wonderful, he said, the years melting away. I knew you two were meant to be together. Come in. We have bare staff now. It's just me, a maid and a footman here in the house, the gardener, of course, and a groom for the horses. Meals aren't what they were when Cook ruled the kitchen, but I say I can put together a mean cold lunch. There's so much to discuss. In minutes, Betteridge had laid out a veritable feast of British country cooking. Admittedly, my time on the continent and beyond had shaped my tastes, turning them away from the staples of my home country. I picked and ate because it was clear Betteredge was not going to continue in conversation until his duties were fulfilled. I am sorry about your lady, my aunt, I said. I know how long you were together. Betteredge nodded, blinking quickly to wipe away the tears glassing his eyes. Since she was a girl and I a young man. It was her heart, they said. She was generous to me, as she always was, allowing me to retire. But this is my home. I'll stay for as long as Miss Rachel will have me. We spent a few more minutes speaking of the dead. When my stomach could take no more, I pushed aside the plate, relit my cigar, and turned my full attention on Betteredge. A wonderful meal, I said. Thank you. And now let's talk business. The day Sergeant Cuff left Betteredge began, he made three predictions. He said I would hear from Yolen College with the message from Rosanna. I did. He said I would hear of the three Indians again, and I did. Finally, he said I would hear of the moneylender or lucre. I did that also. A week after you left, the moneylenderer, Septus Lucre, was taken unawares, blindfolded, tied up naked, and left in a paid apartment of a rooming house. He never saw who did such a thing to him. He was invited to the apartment on the guise of business and went into a room with carpets and furnishings more at home in India than London. He was looking at a book when he was clubbed from behind. His captives didn't ask questions and didn't harm him further. He was found several hours later by the landlady. Word of his experience might not have been worth repeating except the next day the same thing happened to Godfrey Abelwhite. Godfrey, I said, unable to believe my cousin coexisted in the same realm as the moneylenderer. Was he hurt? The same as Luker, Betteredge said, a whack on the head. He was stripped to bare skin, his belongings removed from his clothes and set on a table. Nothing was missing. Not a pound, not his cufflinks, nothing. The police have given up. There's nothing connect Luker to Mr. Godfrey except a chance meeting that day. The very day Luker was set upon, he had run into Mr. Godfrey at the bank. For myself, I, I think the criminal saw Luker with our Mr. Godfrey and assumed a relationship that did not exist. I should say, I said. Well, unless Luker was one of Godfrey's charity cases. Betteredge smiled lowingly. From what I've heard, Luker is not in need of charity. What about the three Indians, I asked. They felt like trouble to me from the first time we saw them. Agree, he said. Mr. Bruff, the solicitor, believed he had an encounter with one. He came to his office seeking to borrow money. He had collateral worth the amount asked. Mr. Bruff declined on the basis that 
lending money was not his normal business and something he only did on occasion for established clients. The Indian didn't take any offense, but did ask Bruff about what terms would have been for the loan. Bruff explained that the original sum plus interest would be due one year from that date, as is common practice. Then the man left, thanking Bruff for his time. Most interesting, I said, leaving my chair to pace the smooth floor. If we assume Bruff's collar was one of the Indians, his presence in London would imply they thought the Moonstone was also in London, not Freezing Hall. The night of Rachel's birthday, if you recall, Mr. Murthwaite warned us of the cunning, determination, and ruthlessness of the men searching for the Moonstone. If then we assume the criminals who set upon Lucre were the Indians, logic dictates that they had reason for suspecting Lucre to have the diamond. It presents itself well, Butteredge agreed. But why the attack on Mr. Godfrey? I shook my head. Perhaps it was the meeting at the bank. As you said, it may have been taken out of context by an observer who wanted to see something that wasn't there. Perhaps with all the charitable work, Godfrey did know Lucre. But again, the topic of their discussion was an error. What say Godfrey? Nothing, Betteredge said. He dismissed the inc incident as mistaken identity and, as no real harm was done, begged the subject be forgotten. Yes, I thought that would be very much keeping with the golden reputation of Godfrey Abelwhite. What of Yolan Cottage, I asked. The Monday after you left, you had two callers. The first was the man for Dr. Candy. The doctor had taken ill after driving home in the rain on Rachel's birthday. When his fever broke, he asked for you. The second was Lucy Yolan, the farmer's daughter, just as Cuff predicted. She said she had a letter for you, one from Rosanna Spearman, the maid who, the maid who killed herself, I finished for him. Where's the letter? Did you open it? What did it say? She wouldn't hand it over, Betteredge said. The girl was loyal to Rosanna, who told her to give you the letter and you only. As far as I know, Lucy still has it. Well, the minute hand hadn't completed a full rotation around the clock before Betteredge and I pulled the pony cart up to the cottage, kept by the fisherman, Yoland. Betteredge knew the couple and was welcomed into the home, as was I by extension. The small talk seemed interminable, but any sign of impatience on my part was met with a glare from Betteredge as though I were still a, t a boy of ten. And then Mrs. Yoland finally called for her daughter, she didn't appear quickly, as I expected in a home of this size. An odd dragging sound came from the room behind our hosts. Then appeared a young woman of 20, pretty aside from her left foot, which was twisted inward. Her gait was slow and lurching as she stepped with her right and dragged her left foot. Her face was open, excited by the company. Hello, Lucy, Betteredge said brightly. Do you remember the letter Rosanna sent you for Mr. Franklin? Surely, Mr. Betteredge, she said softly. Why do you ask? Because this gentleman is Mr. Franklin Blake. He's very interested in the letter. I brought him to collect it. Lucy's gaze swept to me, her face settling into a disapproving frown. I will get it. She turned then, lumbering from where she came. Betteredge did his duty, keeping the conversation going, complimenting the parents on having a daughter who was such a good friend to the tragic Rosanna. I sat and listened, first to the fading sound of the dragging left foot, 
then to silence, and then finally to the growing sound. Lucy stepped into the doorway. I rose and went to her. Her gaze was still most disapproving as she looked from my hair down to my shoes and back. Whatever Rosanna saw in you, she said. She was wrong. She held out the letter. Baffled by the insult, I accepted the envelope and used Better Edge's words. Thank you for keeping this for me. You are a good friend to Rosanna. We should all hope to have a friend such as you. To my greater consternation, she fled the room as fast as she could, the dragging accompanied by mournful sobs. Better Edge stood. Thank you, Mrs. Yoland, he said. We regret any distress we brought your daughter. Not at all, Mrs. Yolen said, opening the door for us. She's been sensitive since Rosanna's death. They were as close as sisters. In the pony carriage, Better Edge turned the horses to the road while I tore open the letter. It's, why Better Edge, it's a set of directions. When does the tide come in? He checked his watch. In about an hour. I took the reins from Better Edge. Then we have no time to lose. To the shivering sands, man, as fast as we can. Franklin returns to the shivering sands. Standing on the bluff, high above the breaking surf, I was alive for the first time in a year. I had suspected Rosanna knew something about the disappearance of the diamond. Her cryptic comments to me that next day in the billiard room left little doubt. But what was she had left here? And why point me of all people to it? Of course, I hoped it was the diamond. With the moonstone and an explanation, I would be at Rachel's door in the morning. It's getting close, Better Edge said, himself alive with the son of the hunt. We have to get down there now. We bore to the west to the access point. I halted at the top, stopping Better Edge with a hand. Stay up here, I said. Are you daft? The old man said in reply. Move along. I shook my head. Rosanna was too smart for her own good. The window to retrieve what she hid is dangerously narrow. One false step and there is no tomorrow. I won't have that for you, Gabriel. Bah, he grumbled. I'm an old man. It's you that has reason to live. Not without Rachel, I said. Not without knowing the reason she threw me aside. This is my quest. The answer was in his eyes. Did he agree? No, but he would stay. I hurried down the rocky slope at times more sliding than running. The base opened to a length of soft sand. I leapt from the rock to the sand, getting my feet underneath me. I raced along the base of the cliff a quarter mile in the yielding sand. I had to hurry. In a few minutes, the sun would be aligned between the church spire at Frising Hall. If I missed this window, I'd have to wait another day, if I survived the liquid sands. Out of breath, a stitch in my side, I found the spot where the spire bisected the sun. And the next instruction directed me 30 paces from the base of the cliff into the water. No easy feat with the monster-sized boulders that nested in the cove. I counted 10 and realized something was amiss. 30 would put me far into the water, a distance Rosanna could not have covered. Fool that I am. She was short, barely five foot. Her paces would be a fraction of mine. Hurrying back to the cliff, I began again. This time, I ended two stones shy of the water. I laid down, feeling between the rocks as instructed. 
Nothing. Nothing but wet, sharp rocks. Wait! My finger stroked metal. A length of chain. Moving forward, I strained my arm deeper into the crevice. My hand burrowed beneath the sand to wrap around a sturdy chain. I pulled and it gave way. I have something, I shouted to Better Edge. Never mind that he couldn't hear me. With my hand now above the rock, I shifted positions, using my feet for extra leverage. I pulled, but it was stuck. Franklin, the water! Above the sound of the wind and the surf, Better Edge's voice reached me. An impossibility. I glanced over my shoulder to see the devout steward on the sand back against the bluff. The water, he repeated. I saw his urgency. The tide was rising. The sand was beginning to shiver. Leave it, he advised. But I knew I could get it. I went to my knees, crawling out as far as I dared, my fingers on the chain. I found the snag on a jagged section of rock and freed it. Readily, I reeled the chain in. Some 12 feet long, it came willingly, as did the box tied in the end. Get out of here, Better Edge. Now, I ordered. I scrambled as far inland as the chain allowed, working to free the box. The chain held. Rosanna secured the box so that even the shivering sands couldn't loosen it. Out of options, I began slamming the tin against the rocks. All of my might went into separating the base from the lid. A gap appeared, and then a hole, and then the lid itself cracked, creating room to free the box. I hurried over the rocks, leaving the chain and the lid to the rising tide. I caught up to Better Edge as he began to ascend, ascend the rugged stairs. My arm on his, we climbed as far as we could, and then rested. High above the tide, we were safe. After a second rest, we crusted the top. Falling to the soft grass, under the warm sun, we both began laughing. I am too old for any more of your adventures, Betteridge said, but his eyes were a twinkle. He would never be too old for adventure. Shall we see what our treasure is, I asked. What we found wiped all humor from our faces. Chapter 4 Franklin returns to Rachel. I don't understand, I said. I was literally tearing my hair out. How could the nightshirt be mine? The facts were in my hand, a linen nightshirt with a smear of blue paint and a tag with my name on it. Surely I would know if I took Rachel's diamond. Betteredge poured a second snifter of brandy. He drank as he read Rosanna's letter for the third time. I didn't know, I told him. I would never intentionally be as callous as she described. The truth of it is, she made me uncomfortable. She would just look at me, just stare for a little too long. She would come into rooms she had no business being in. Of course, now it makes sense. Well, not sense. Young women are difficult at best, Betteredge said. Penelope tried to tell me Rosanna loved you. I thought she was exaggerating, the way women do when talking with a romantic heart. It was ridiculous, and I told her so. Penelope, not Rosanna. Only if I had told Rosanna, perhaps she would be alive. Where's the logic in it, Franklin? His voice broke at the question. I don't know, and, and that's the truth, I said. To think of all she did, sneaking into town and buying new linen, hurriedly making me a new nightshirt and switching it for my own. I never noticed the one returned from the laundry wasn't mine. 
I sucked on my cigar, the smoke doing as much for me as Better Edge's brandy. And then this elaborate, I waved my hand. I don't have a word for the letter to Lucy Yolen, the chain and the tin and, by God, the suicide. There is no undoing what's been done, Better Edge said practically. Better to tackle the questions we can do something about. How did the paint get on your nightshirt without you being aware? Was I drunk that night, I asked. Miss Rachel's birthday, he said. No, never. I know you're not a drinker. I even cut the wine I served you. You were as right as I am, but you weren't feeling well, if you recalled. That's right, I said. I hadn't slept in days. I'd given up smoking, that was all. I took it up again before I reached London. Suppose, I said, just for a moment, suppose I did walk in my sleep. Suppose I did go into Rachel's room and take the diamond. Why wasn't I seen? If I walked down the hall into her room and all the way back to mine, why wasn't I seen? Then I answered my own question. Rosanna saw me. But it wasn't you, Betteredge said. No, it wasn't. But somebody wanted Rachel to think it was. First thing in the morning, I'm going back to London. Well, I began in Mr. Bruff's office, bringing him into my confidence. I spared him nothing, the nightshirt, the paint, the letter. In return, he brought me into his, the visit from the Indian. His suspicion the moonstone was tucked away in a bank vault under the signature of Septimus Lucre. It was time for Rachel to talk. This time, an invitation to tea was not enough. Luncheon was finishing. I heard the tinging of silver on china and the voices making carefree plans for the evening. I waited in the library, having gained entry through a narrow door using a key Bruff had given me. Everything was tied up in this meeting. Rachel would either talk to me or... No, Rachel would talk to me. Franklin. My name was a whisper spoken from her lips. I couldn't stop myself. I was across the room in a moment, and then she was in my arms. I kissed Rachel, a drowning man desperate for saving. For a moment, she kissed me back. My Rachel. And suddenly she stepped away, her mask back in place. How can you be so cold, so hard, I asked, after what we shared. I, she said with outrage, how could you do what you did after what we shared? Enough, Rachel, I said. We need to get to the bottom of this. She laughed, not the funny kind of laughed. We are at the bottom of this, Franklin. I've been at the bottom for an entire year. I took a breath, a deep one, and then tried another tactic. Rosanna Spearman showed you my nightshirt with blue paint on it, didn't she? Confusion furrowed her brows. What are you talking about? The day after your birthday, I said, it was Rosanna who showed you a nightshirt and convinced you it was me who took your diamond. She shook her head. Rosanna didn't show me your nightshirt. She didn't have to. I saw you take the diamond. I saw you. How could you, Franklin? She spun to leave, but I caught her, holding her. You have to tell me what you saw, Rachel, every detail. Why, she asked, sounding so sad.
because I didn't do this, I said. After I said goodnight, did you go to bed? Yes, she said, but I couldn't sleep. I laid awake thinking about the future, about you, and then I heard a noise. Someone was in my sitting room. I cracked open the door just enough to see, and there you were. She wasn't lying. She was telling me the truth as she knew it, but it couldn't have been. You saw me, I asked. You saw my face. I did, she said boldly. You carried a candle. It fully lit your face. I reeled with the revelation. Rachel saw me. How did this make sense? How did I look? Were my eyes open? You looked like... You look like you, she said. Your eyes were bright, far brighter than I've ever seen them. Why did you take it, Franklin? Why did you betray me? I clasped her arms. I know you loved me once, Rachel. If you have even a flicker of affection left, believe me when I say I am just learning of my actions. I have no memory of the night. I can't help but think that some fiend has set us against each other. Her eyes searched mine for the longest time. Why would somebody do such a thing? Because they couldn't stomach how happy we were, I said. Because you are a beautiful young heiress. Because a diamond worth 20,000 pounds is a lot of money. I kissed her forehead. Do not give up hope. Her eyes were sad and glassy. I gave up hope so long ago, I've forgotten what it feels like. It feels like this, I said, and then I kissed her again. I will figure out who did this to us. I will make it right. And with that, I left her. Chapter 5. Franklin Returns to an Unstable State I stayed in London, at the townhouse that was my father's and was now mine. After a late luncheon, I paid a call on Godfrey Abelwhite. Franklin, dear cousin, what a surprise, he said, joining me in the family's parlor. I just have a few minutes. I'm due at the Cathedral of Perpetual Mourning at half past, and you know how I can't tolerate tardy. Godfrey was in high spirits, greeting me with a strong handshake and a broad smile. I'm sorry about your father, he said. All of London was weeping about the loss. Please sit. Thank you, Godfrey, I said, taking the best chair. I appreciate the thought. I left home assuming the world here would stand still. A bit childish in hindsight. Now I'm back trying to catch up on the year I lost. I can't believe Aunt Julia is gone. Oh, a horrible day, he said. Then he recalled the events in nonspecific terms. Rachel was devastated, to the point that she asked to break off our engagement, he said. It broke my heart, but I, I agreed. He smiled weakly. Something else we have in common, cousin. Jilted by the same woman. Bad luck seems to run in the family, I said, turning the conversation to my reason for coming. I heard you had a bit of bad luck last year. You were kidnapped? Kidnapped, he said, thoroughly shocked. Ah, my little adventure. He told me a pared-down version of the one Betteredge told. You kept the story quiet, I said. I had no interest in being a headline, he said. Oh, of course. Any sane man wouldn't want to be a headline, but the whole thing is truly unbelievable. Why would someone target you, I asked. Mistaken identity, he said with a dismissive shrug. Wrong place at the wrong time. Nothing more. I'd like to continue the conversation, cousin, but I, I have to be going. The matrons are expecting me. Today, 
we are transferring coats of delinquent fathers into dinner coats for the underprivileged. It's a big day. His eyebrows bounced. Exciting, I said, not meaning it in the least. We walked out together, he going right, me left. The walk to my home gave me time to contemplate. What had I done with the diamond after I took it? How did the diamond travel from Yorkshire to London? Did I do that too? The strange attacks on Godfrey and Luker, how were they connected, if they were connected? Rounding the corner to my own street, walking to my front door, I didn't have answers. Welcome home, sir, my butler said. You received a telegram from Gabriel Butteredge. It was marked urgent. Mr. Ezra Jennings was Dr. Candy's assistant and caretaker. The fever Candy contracted after Rachel's party addled his mind. He rambled for days, Jennings said. I would say it was a miracle he recovered, but in truth it was nonstop care. Unfortunately, the fever took his memory. He remembers nothing before the day he woke. He wanted to talk to me, I said. You made a point of calling on Betteredge here. Betteredge nodded. You have no idea what Dr. Candy wanted? Did he leave a note, a clue for us? Jennings cocked his head like a dog. He did not, but when he was in a fever and he was delirious, I, I took notes of his ramblings. He spoke of you, Mr. Blake. Let me get my notebooks. Jennings went to his bookcase and selected one of the leather-bound books. He flipped through the pages. Here, he said, and handed me the book. I accepted. My greedy eyes consumed the page. Mr. Franklin, and agreeable, down a peg. Medicine, confesses, sleep at night. Tell him, out of order, medicine. He tells me, and groping in the dark mean one and the same thing. All the company at the dinner table. I say, groping after sleep. Nothing but medicine, he says, leading the blind. Know what it means. Witty. A night's rest in spite of his teeth. Lady Verinder's medicine chest. Five and twenty minims. Without his knowing it, tomorrow morning, excellent. Dose of laudamin, sir. Bed, what, medicine now? Betteredge looked between us. What does it mean? Jennings looked a bit sheepish. It seems to me that Dr. Candy dosed you, Mr. Blake, with laudanum without your knowledge to help you sleep. Well, I should have been outraged, but instead I was curious. Could laudanum cause me to sleepwalk? I told him about that evening. Could laudanum be the reason I don't remember? It's not impossible, Jennings said. All patients respond differently. Some have reported memory loss. He tra trailed off and then said, I wonder, if we created the conditions, would you reenact your part? I'm game to dry, I said. What do we need to do? Everything needs to be the same, Jennings said. The room, the environment, what caused you to be unable to sleep? I gave up smoking, I said. Then stop smoking, right now, he said, taking the cigar out of my hand. Betteredge stirred, getting our attention. I'll need to write to Miss Rachel for her permission. We have quite made quite a bit of change in the house over the year. It'll be need to put back. I nodded. When do we do it? Jennings shrugged. When? Once again, you haven't slept for a few days. It was as it was before. I was desperate for sleep. We had dinner, Betteredge, Jennings, and I. 
Just before bed, Jennings dosed my drink. He fussed over the dosage. It was impossible to know what Candy had given me, so he had to guess. I would have preferred having more confidence, but it was all we had to work with. I went to bed as I had that night, so tired my bones ached. Betteredge Jennings and I went through the motions of that fateful evening. Betteredge set a rock in the same drawer of the same chest. I wished them both good night and retired to my room. My routine was the same, nightshirt, toilet, the drink, to bed. Eager for an answer, my mind focused on nothing beside the diamond. Somewhere in the tangle of thoughts, I drifted into sleep. I must have because I dreamed of Rachel, dreamt she was sitting next to me, her beautiful smile shining down on me. Good morning, Franklin, she said softly. I reached out, expecting my hand to pass through the shadow. I cupped her face, my thumb stroking her cheek. She was solid beneath my hand, and she was warm. Rachel, I sat up, finding myself not in my bed, but on the couch in her sitting room. Looking around, I found better edge in the chair. Did it work? Partially, he said. About an hour after you went to bed, you came in here. You went to the chest and took the diamond, well, rock, and then you merely looked around, laid down on the couch, and went back to sleep. I stayed to watch, but you didn't move. I looked to Rachel. It's true, she said. You did exactly as you did that night, except you didn't leave the room. I touched his, her cheek again. How is it you're here? She covered my hand with hers. When Betteredge wrote about Mr. Jennings' plan, I had to come. I'm so very sorry not to have more faith in you, in us. Her gaze drifted to her faithful servant. Betteredge, could you excuse us? In the minutes that followed, Rachel committed herself to me and I to her. For the first time in a year, all was right in the world. That's gross, man. Chapter 6. Franklin Stakes Out a Bank Mr. Bruff had accompanied Rachel to the estate and joined us for luncheon. We speculated on what I could have done with the diamond. The common sense idea was that I'd hid it somewhere in the house. Betteredge dismissed that solution. We've looked everywhere, he said. I cannot imagine a place you could have hidden it in your sleep that we have not looked. The diamond isn't here, Bruff said. I am thoroughly convinced it is in London, locked in the bank under Luker's name. I tried talking to Luker. While he wouldn't answer directly, his enigmatic, enigmatic, his, yeah, I can say that word, his puzzling smile said I was right. How, then, did the diamond get from your hand to London? The Indians, Rachel suggested. Bruff shook his head. If they had the moonstone, it would be in India, not London. If, as Sergeant Cuff predicted, our villain has borrowed money against it, the payment date is quickly approaching. I saw where he was going. The diamond is coming out of the bank, I said. Either Luker will return it to his customer, the debt having been paid, or he will take it for himself. We need to return to London. We did not, of course, know the exact date the loan had been taken out. Bruff and I took to staking out the bank, waiting Mr. Luker's arrival. Bruff had a number of associates who were skilled in this type of work. Together there were five of us, including a gangly boy with crazed eyes. On the second day, Luger visited the bank. One of Bruff's men entered after Luger and confirmed that he left with a parcel. We followed him through the bustling streets, my eye drawn to an alley where I saw an Indian man. He watched Luger, his gaze fixed 
so he did not see any other. The Indians are here, I told Bruff. We can't lose Luker, Bruff said, walking faster. If the Indians get to him first, the diamond is as good as gone. A block later, at a busy intersection, with horses, carriages, and pedestrians all crossing, Luker ran into a man. Did he give that man a parcel, I asked? He did, Bruff said. He ordered his men to stay with Luker while we followed the stranger. Our man knew the London streets like the back of his hand. He cut his way in and out of the crowds to the point where we lost him. On the bridge, Bruff said. There he is. We ran to close the distance as our man crossed the Thames. He turned a right corner and then a left and went into a storefront of a pharmacy. Easy now, Bruff cautioned. He took a moment to catch his breath and then entered the store. Our man had placed a small bag on the table. The pharmacist was in the act of pulling out two small bottles. Then the empty bag was folded and put away. Damn it, I said. We followed the wrong man. We did, Bruff said, as disgusted as I. My men will stay with Luger. Let's return to my office. They know where to find me until the end of business hours. We did as he suggested. By the time Bruff locked his door, his two men had returned, having as much success as we two. Only the boy remained out. We retired to Bruff's house for dinner with Rachel and his wife. Dinner was nearly finished when the boy returned. He'd followed the dark-skinned man to a pub where the man took a room, room eight. The boy had waited for the man to come down to dinner, looking for a chance to put his eyes on the room, but the man didn't. Tired and hungry, the boy came to Bruff to report. Good work, lad, Bruff said. Go into the kitchen and see what Cook has for you. After fulfilling our obligations to the ladies, Bruff and I went to the pub. The sun was setting when we arrived. I went directly to the rooms and, on the top floor, found room eight. Bruff followed. When I went to knock, he caught my arm. What are you going to say when he answers? I don't know, I admitted. I'll just... Before I could talk myself out of it, I knocked. No one answered. I knocked again and listened. I didn't hear anything behind the door. It was as though it were empty. We hurried back down to the pub. I think there's something wrong with the man in room eight, I told the publican, talking until he was leading the way up the stairs and opening the door with his key. There on the bed with a pillow over his face, was a dead man. The publican erupted in a twisted, cocky monologue that was barely recognizable as English. I caught coppers and cursed room as he raced from the room. Constable will soon be here, I said. Look about, Bruff. Learn what we can before we have company. I stayed with the body. To my untrained eye, suffocation was likely the cause of death. Feathers from the pillow he tried to inhale were in the dead man's mouth. There was some bruising on his wrist as if he was held down. That was the extent of the damage to the body. No bleeding wounds, no battered head. I shared my findings with Bruff. The room is intact, he said back. There hasn't been a fight or a struggle. Not a thing is broken. The only thing out of place is this chair. You see, it has been pulled away from the wall. Yes, I said, it's under that trap door. Where does it go? The attic? One way to find out, he held the back of the chair, intimating that I should be the one to look. As I was 20 years younger and 100 pounds lighter, I went. The hinge door opened easily under my hand. The sounds and smells of night greeted me. It's the roof, I said, and then climbed down. Without a better moon, I, I can't see much. They had to escape through the roof, Bruff said, pointing to the window over the road. 
three stories down, no balconies, and no other way to get down without a nasty fall. I inventoried the room. Aside from the body, the room looked ready to let. The man had no cases, no trunk. He hadn't changed clothes or taken his toiletries. The table next to the bed held the room key and enough money for a train ticket to anywhere. It was as if he had walked into the room, laid down, and was killed. All right, so here's the part where we pause for a solution. So, well, for your solution. So who is the dead man? How is he killed? And how is he connected to the moonstone? You can't say how is he killed. We thought he was suffocated. Oh, you're right. He was suffocated. Who was the dead man? And how is he, maybe why was he killed? Let's go with why was he killed? If, If he wasn't killed by a pillow? He was killed by a pillow. Mom, you keep spoiling it. He was we killed by any- a pillow. But we don't know who he is. I or- think he's... Lu- well, they know who Luker is, right? Yep. Everybody knows who Luker is. He's the money lender. So, does does the dude know who he is? Who's the dude? Frank. Franklin? Frank Tank, yeah. <laughs> yes, Franklin knows. Franklin, Franklin recognizes the, the dead body. Oh... So the who part could be figured out by the process of elimination. This isn't one of those jacked up stories. Sorry, Jack, to use your name in vain, where the victim or the killer isn't somebody we haven't met yet. So when you have the who, it can be, it it kind of falls into place as to the why. Well, I'll be honest. I think it's the cousin because I think he wanted to get together with Rachel. That was my guess from the start. All right. Well, To all of you puzzlers out there, if you want to go back through the uh, cast of characters, you can see everybody that we've already met, and you can, you know, post your vote and see if you agree with Jack. It's Rosanna. Okay. And with that, we're ready for the wrap-up. Chapter 7, Franklin Loses and Wins. This man, he looks familiar. I stood over the unfortunate soul, wondering why I had a feeling of familiarity. It's not unusual for men to wear wigs in this day and age. Removing this one revealed the shock of corn silk blonde hair. Using my handkerchief, I wiped at his face, the color smeared. Bruff, water please. When the man provided a glass three quarters filled, I dipped the white cloth and again wiped. The colorant wiped away more easily until pasty pale skin was revealed. My God, bruff, it's Godfrey Abelwhite. Oh, yeah. Sometime later, in the quiet of bruff's billiard room, whiskey was poured and he puffed on a cigar. Dear Lord, it smelled heavenly. You've really given it up then, he asked, referring to smoking. I nodded, not trusting my voice to make the commitment. Rachel doesn't like the smell. She was the reason I gave it up in the first place. I took a swig of liquor. I'm in search of a new bad habit. Well, I would advise against finding dead bodies, Bruff said, shivering at the memory. What was he ever doing there? Let's go back, I said, to what we know and insert Godfrey. We know that, under the influence of laudanum, I went into Rachel's sitting room and removed the diamond. Rachel saw me. What if Godfrey also saw me? I was worried about Rachel having the diamond, so on instinct I hid it. 
Godfrey watched me and then removed the diamond. Possibly he removed it then. Possibly he did it the next day when I woke with no memory of the previous night. Even if it's conceivable that I gave him the diamond to hide, regardless of the details, Godfrey and only Godfrey either had the diamond the next morning or knew of its location. Rachel hadn't followed you out of the room, Bruff said, so she only knew that you took it, not what happened after. Correct, I said. Inspector Seagrave searched the servants' rooms and, of course, didn't find what wasn't there. He never searched our rooms. If he had, he would have found my stained nightshirt. Instead, Rosanna found it and recognized what it was. The dear foolish girl took it upon herself to protect me. Claiming to have a sick head, she snuck into town, bought material, and fashioned me a new shirt. Bruff snorted. Lucky for you she did, or you would be in Seagate branded a thief. Perhaps, I said, but it was Sergeant Cuff who realized the importance of the smear and, because of Rachel's refusal, did not search the house. At that point, my nightshirt was already gone. Cuff suspected Rachel and Rosanna were conspirators. Given Rachel's refusal to help find her own diamond and Rosanna's past, it was not an unreasonable theory, but Cuff was wrong. The only common bond between the two women was their loyalty to me. Paused in my revelation here, grieving for the young misguided woman who threw away her life. I will never claim to understand the thought process that brought Roxana to that act as the logical next step. No, there was no future for her with me, but that did not mean there was no future, or even love. In these modern 1850s, there were nearly 18 million people living in England and Wales. She had options. Cuff thought Rachel carried the Moonstone to London, Bruff said, bringing me out of my melancholy, but it was Godfrey. Yes, I said, once he returned to his own home in London, he paid a visit to Septimus Lucre, the feigned moneylenderer. Bruff breathed out a stream of smoke. I would ask why a man of Godfrey's means would need a man like Lucre, but my own practice teaches me that the face a man shows to society and the one he wears at home are often very different. In the morning, I shall set a man upon Godfrey's history. It would answer questions, I said, but it will not return the moonstone. Lucre did deposit the diamond in the bank. Godfrey witnessed it. The Indians, I suspect, had reason that Godfrey had the diamond. They saw him with Lucre and set upon both, albeit separately. They were too late. The diamond was already under lock and key. Learning that Lucre was a money lender, they came to you, not to borrow money, as your visitor said, but to learn the terms of the loan. Why me? Bruff asked. There's no way to be sure, I said. Perhaps it was, as your guest said, a referral from someone he knew. More likely, I think, it was he knew of your role, cursory as it might be. Once knowing it would be a year until the moonstone would be removed from the bank, the Indians settled in and waited. They are a patient set, Bruff said, sipping his whiskey. We watched the bank. I suspected they watched Lucre. They, like your boy, saw the handoff and followed the disguised Godfrey Abelwhite. While the boys settled in to watch the pub, waiting for Godfrey to reemerge, the Indians gained entry to room eight. By God, Blake, do you think Godfrey let them into his room? I highly doubt it. Godfrey was young and able. Even set upon by three men, he would have fought back. There were no signs. 
No, I think it more likely Godfrey was exhausted by it all and had laid down to rest. Given his disguise, he had a plan. He wasn't leaving London. Perhaps in a few hours he would have walked out of the pub as himself. Why anyone watching would still be looking for a dark-skinned, dark-haired man. Reasonable, Bruff said. But then it leaves that trap door in the ceiling as the way the Indians gained access. It was damn good luck on their part that Godfrey was given that room. I doubt every room has a similar hatch. How did they even know it was there? I shrugged. They were determined and looked for opportunity. I am certain it was easy to learn which room Godfrey had been given. Were I them, I would have inspected the entirety of the building, inside and out, for options. Perhaps there was a ladder propped against the building and one went up to look, maybe hoping to gain entry through an open window. And there it was, a trapdoor located over the very room they hoped to enter. They had to make noise, Bruff said. Opening that trapdoor and dropping to the floor would not have been silent. Agree, I said, but they must have been quiet enough that Godfrey didn't wake. One man went to one side of the bed, another to another, gripping his arms to hold him down. There was bruising there. I doubt they questioned him. They didn't question him the first time they took him and Luger. He was, if he was given a choice between the diamond and his life, wouldn't he have chosen his life? Bruff shook his head sadly. We want to say we knew Godfrey, but the Godfrey we knew would not have been dressed in such an elaborate costume, would not have gone to such extreme measures. But then, it doesn't matter if he was given a choice. We know the outcome. We do, I agreed. The Indians most likely recovered the moonstone and escaped through the trap door. Bruff set his empty glass on the bar. The police have posted notice to be on the lookout for the three Indians. They'll have a very difficult time leaving England, wanted for murder. Do you really think they have the diamond? Time will tell, I said. A stone of that size and value will not stay hidden for long. For myself and for Rachel, I'm glad to be rid of it and the misery it brought. I set down my own empty glass and prepared to return home. I'm going to call on Rachel tomorrow and ask her to marry me. It's a year later than it should have been, and but what has happened has taught me what real treasure is. A few notes I thought you'd be interested in. A week after Godfrey's death, Bruff called me to his office. His investigator found that Godfrey was keeping a very fashionable lady in a very, with a very unfashionable background in one of London's finer neighborhoods. She was the reason behind Godfrey's financial straits and the reason he let Rachel out of the engagement. He couldn't marry. Lady Rurinder's friend, Mr. Murthwaite, sent a letter the following spring that, while on a trip to India, he paid a visit to a cousin's village where a statue of Buddha sat with a large diamond in its forehead. The moonstone had the most amazing lure attached to it, one that reached all the way back to our shores. Sergeant Cuff had retired to the country and spent his time among the roses. He developed a friendship with our gardener, Bigby, who's just returned from a visit. He's currently replacing the gravel walks in our garden with grass. And finally, Rachel and I did marry that summer. We have returned to Yorkshire, where Betteredge is very busy preparing for the first of the next generation. If it's a girl, we're going to name her Rosanna. And there you have it. That wraps up the story of the Moonstone. So, Jack, you were halfish, right? It was Godfrey. 
but he did not do it out of love. He did it for the money. <laughs> so I want to wrap up a few little things. It's like we talked about, these are the first to be considered mysteries, and so they don't always fit perfect. I had to do a little bit of work to get this to squeeze into a, a podcast here. Overall, I thought the mystery is pretty well laid out. Uh, there were so many times this one was a did not finish, but I'm, I'm glad I stuck with it. Um, Wilkie Collins, he used a few devices I didn't love. While it was a great twist to have Franklin find his old name on a nightshirt, it was a pretty long stretch for me to have him steal the diamond while sleepwalking under the influence of laudanum and have no memory of it. We don't get to hear from Godfrey to learn exactly what happened that night. That's why I added quite a bit of conjecture to it, because we don't actually hear first person what happened. And again, it was a great twist to have Godfrey in the costume dead in a pub. I didn't see it coming. It was a stretch on the assailants getting in and out by the roof. I had to add quite a bit of description to avoid the feeling of coincidence. I do think straight up legit that the Indians would have been persistent enough that trapdoor or not they would have found a way into room 8. And for all the talk of Septimus Luker, no one in the original story actually talked to the man. At least not that I caught. I admit I skimmed some sections so it could have been buried. Um, that part did nag at me so I added it in here uh, having him neither confirm nor deny. If you like epic novels with constantly changing narrators, check out The Moonstone. I've put a link in the show notes. And again, check out the show notes for a list of characters. So that, my friends, wraps this episode of Mysteries to Die For. Support our show by telling a mystery lover about us and giving us a five-star review. Become a member of our Body Bag Brigade by financially supporting this season with a one-time donation. Pay what you can. We appreciate it all. Information is in the show notes and on our website, tgwolf.com forward slash podcast. Mysteries to Die For is written by T.G. Wolf with contribution from Jack Wolf. Franklin Blake Returns was written by T.G. Wolf, adapted from The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by Shannon Leahy. Join us in two weeks for episode six, In Plain Sight an adaptation of A Strange Disappearance by Anna Catherine Green. All right, Jack, take us out. Good job. <laughs>